My name's Lloyd Danzig, and on this podcast, we explore the topics and trends that are shaping the creation and dispersion of artificial intelligence around the globe. Welcome to the AI Experience. Right. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, really excited to jump right in today and, and talk about a particularly relevant topic uh, that has really been brought into focus in, in, in say, the last four to six weeks. And, and that is the topic of something called predictive policing. And, and we'll get into exactly what that means and what it includes and what it excludes in a moment. But I think first it's good to start with uh, the reason uh, for which this has become so relevant uh, and topical, and, and of course, hope to do so without getting into uh, any, you know, overly political discussions, because uh, politics and even, you know, uh, you know, political leanings uh, aside, uh, this is really, I think, something that that should be uh, assessed and analyzed, uh, and hopefully prognosticated through uh, in a bit of a vacuum, or at least in in, in some sort of vacuum that is absent. Uh, you know, political influence and, and all of the convoluted interests that come with that. And, and the reason why this has uh, become so topical is because uh, late last month or mid last month, I think it was June 15th, uh, a letter uh, was submitted uh, to the notices of the American Mathematical Society uh, that ended up being signed, I think, by 1,500, 2,000 of the really just most respected and well-regarded mathematicians uh, in the country, I want to say. Uh, I haven't looked and seen how international the signatory list has gotten. But uh, the point is, the reason why all of these top mathematicians with advanced degrees and, uh, and teaching positions at prestigious universities and institutions have signed on uh, is to sever ties and promote the severing of ties with police departments across the U.S., specifically as relates to this concept of predictive policing, which at least to sort of pave the road for the rest of the discussion, we can think of as as using data and analytics to make decisions uh, that relate to how and when and where to staff police uh, officers, how to distribute resources within and among and between precincts uh, on and during what hours there should be more and fewer officers in and out of cars in various areas. And of course, you know, a, a classic and I think very simple and easy to understand example is uh, if a, uh, a data set seems to indicate that a strip of uh, bars and nightclubs, uh, which are open late into the night, uh, seem to be an area in which a large number of drunk, a disproportionate number of drunk driving uh, accidents are taking place. Uh, perhaps police would want to deploy more officers to conduct field tests and breathalyzers or something of the sort in that area. And I think what we'll soon see is that, you know, first of all, that is, again, a seemingly innocuous and, and pretty logical uh, reason to want to wanna use data and analytics and, and predictive tools uh, to, to keep communities safer. But I think what we will also see pretty quickly is that just as the case with many other AI applications that have incredibly positive benefits and externalities uh, that, that can be enjoyed by many, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the trajectory that the technology and society will take. And, and in fact, in many cases, and I think perhaps this is really one of them, it's much easier, uh, especially given the current state of the world, to see a trajectory where, where things go wrong uh, instead of one where things go right. And the, the people who, who penned this letter, uh, they certainly were not shy uh, about any of their sort of political leanings or beliefs. And uh, just to quote from the letter for a second, uh, it says, 
Given the structural racism and brutality in U.S. policing, we do not believe that mathematicians should be collaborating with police departments in this manner. It is simply too easy to create a scientific veneer for racism. Please join us in committing to not collaborating with police. It is at this moment the very least, the very least we can do as a community. Um, and I think, you know, uh, obviously you can see where, where many of them may lie on the political spectrum, but that, that line, it is simply too easy to create a scientific veneer for racism. Uh, I think that's a, a well articulated line, but, but I actually think it only really scratches the surface uh, of the issue. Uh, yes, certainly one issue is that, uh, you know, officers may be able to point to a computer output uh, or perhaps the misreading of a computer output as some sort of justification for what otherwise would have been, uh, you know, something that was considered a, a racial injustice or a hate crime of some sort. Uh, you know, a, a sort of example you could imagine is uh, really uh, an officer simply saying, hey, the, the computer told me. Uh, that I should be in this area at this time and be on high alert with my weapon. And that's why I drew it uh, and discharged it. Um, and, and, you know, I think especially given the state of the world right now, I, I think uh, the mayor of Portland uh, got tear gassed last night by federal agents uh, in his own city, which is sort of putting a lot of, uh, you know, these these legal issues as relates to policing and, and use of force in, in quite a murky area. Uh, I, I think the again, the authors of this letter were, were quite well justified in worrying about this scientific veneer for racism. But but I think uh, probably one of the greater issues is both more insidious, a bit harder to detect because of its subtlety, but but much more nefarious. And, and that is the the possibility or probably a better word would be the likelihood of creating really detrimental feedback loops uh, that, that exist that, that keep, you know, certain groups, certain classes, uh, certain, uh, you know, belongings of people in a situation that is very difficult to get out of. And there are many who say that, that we're already in uh, a bit of this here in the U.S., particularly uh, with the, the prison system and higher incarceration rates where, People who are born in certain communities uh, are disadvantaged in many ways and have fewer resources. That results to often resorting to crime or uh, activities that, that might be in legally dubious areas in order to generate income and, and buy food and, and retain shelter and, and other resources. Uh, of course, illegal activities often result in uh, arrest, fines, and jail time. Uh, and once someone is out of jail uh, or has been arrested, it is typically even more difficult uh, to get a job and provide for oneself or one's family, often pushing them further down this this life and path of crime. And, and this is, you know, an argument that, that has been made and, and that sociologists have been trying to toy with and parse through uh, for, for quite a while now. And I think we should sort of think of the way uh, or ways in which this could happen uh, using predictive policing. Uh, so for me, I think, uh, you know, the most obvious example is simply the fact that uh, the data that is being used uh, to, to decide where there should be an increased number of officers dispatched. Well, what, what is that based on? Because if it is based on prior arrests, uh, well, then especially those who, who espouse the belief that uh, certain groups are disproportionately targeted uh, by police, uh, they would be well suited to be nervous that there would be a feedback loop whereby uh, suppose there's, uh, you know, a certain community 
that feels it's being unfairly targeted by the police. Well, the fact that there's a larger number of arrests or calls or police activity in the data set that relates to those addresses in that zip code likely means that the output of this predictive policing tool will, uh, will, will recommend a stronger and higher police presence, will, which will in turn lead to more police activity, more arrests, more convictions, which will in turn to lead to a greater amount of police presence, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then there are other uh, communities and areas where they actually wish uh, perhaps that they would have more protection from the police, but would be too afraid to ever call the police themselves. Uh, this can be, you know, for any number of reasons. There are communities that, that are ravaged by gangs where uh, if you are to reach out to the police, that's, you know, putting your life in danger. There are certainly communities where people feel the police themselves are a greater threat uh, than other criminals around them. And again, regardless of anyone's political leanings or ideology, the simple fact is there are communities like these where people have the subjective experience of these things being true. And insofar as that affects their behaviors when it comes to calling police, interacting with police, uh, being sentenced by police, uh, being arrested by police and, and, and being uh, involved in altercations. Well, of course, the, those are the very data sets, the, the people who are going to be impacted by the downstream outputs of these predictive models are the very ones creating uh, the data that, that is being used as input. And if you are someone who feels that historically uh, police have been biased in various ways, particularly against your own group, well, then you would expect uh, those same biases to, to manifest uh, in the training data sets on which these predictive tools are, are, are being uh, are, are being generated. And there's a there's a particular company uh, called Predpol, P-R-E-D-P-O-L, uh, one word, but seemingly a, a sort of portmanteau of predictive or prediction and, and policing. Uh, that, that's one of the main companies in the space that has contracts with, I think, something like 50 different uh, police departments, and they also allegedly, as has been, you know, the the uh, the topic of, or has been a, a large portion of attention raised by the same letter I, I mentioned at the top of the episode of the mathematicians uh, refusing to work with police. Uh, the same company that makes a good deal of revenue by contracting with police uh, instantiated a conference back in 2016 that was meant to foster uh, closer relationships between mathematicians and police departments for this exact reason. And, and so I think part of what's happening is, is people stepping back and saying, wait, hold on one second. There's, there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. Uh, we're seeing what's going on in our communities and other communities. We've seen what has happened around the world uh, with, you know, militarized police forces. And, and we certainly don't want to lend, you know, this new mathematical predictive tool set uh, that we still are, are, are trying to figure out how to best deploy in, in many other industries. Uh, we're worried to deploy that in one where the recipients of this technology have guns and shields and tear gas and, and, and weapons and armored trucks uh, and the like. And I think just as, you know, people fear that AI in the military's hands or AI-powered weapons are scarier than AI-powered toasters, I think it's probably fair to, to just say that all things being equal, if people effectuating decisions that are the result of an AI output have weapons, there's simply an increased likelihood that any uh, any output, particularly an erroneous output, a false positive or false negative, uh, could lead to some undesirable uh, results and, and implications that, that really impact people and, and can impact their well-being and, and their lives. Um, 
And so I think, you know, it's, it's important to think of how mathematics and prediction is used uh, in many industries and how your credit card limit is being uh, determined and, and, and how your mortgage rate is being determined. And, and of course, you know, any of these things could have bias in them. Uh, if historically, uh, let's say, you know, people of a certain community or particular class have been given low mortgage rates, I'm sorry, high mortgage rates, unfavorable mortgage rates that they had a greater difficulty paying off uh, and therefore ended up, uh, you know, uh, with more delinquencies, uh, well, then perhaps people will continue issuing even higher, even less favorable mortgage rates to that same community, uh, which makes it even more difficult for them to avoid delinquency and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think the reason why there has been such an uproar, particularly as some of the, you know, really terrifying images of, uh, you know, clashes between civilians and, and police uh, have, have been plastered on, on television on, on the 24 hour news cycle uh, for the past few months. Uh, there's a real outcry, I think, when anything is, is impacting people's well-being and, and can impact, you know, or, or very quickly claim the lives and freedom uh, of someone who has nothing to do with the technological decision. Uh, I think that's something else uh, that, that sort of gets people uh, to feel that there really is some extra vigilance uh, that is needed. Uh, of course, everyone should be treated fairly when applying for a mortgage, but at least when you're applying for a mortgage, you are at least should be in the mindset that, you know, you're going to receive some financial scrutiny and, and you're taking out a loan and will be paying interest. And maybe the interest rate is higher than expected, but at least you can have a bearing on that. Uh, predictive policing could become a, a status quo tactic used by police uh, departments all over the country, totally unbeknownst to, to civilians. And, and those very civilians could end up uh, sort of being part of this social experiment or, or, or on the uh, on the not so fun end of, of an incorrect, you know, false, false positive arrest, uh, or, you know, perhaps somewhere in, in the more difficult, you know, I think that's the other, the other point, uh, is, is that it's not even entirely obvious, you know, what a false positive and what a false negative, uh, represents here. You know, we're not necessarily talking about using, uh, computers to decide who should be arrested or when. Uh, and let's make sure we're also not really talking about facial recognition here, although I think it's important to, to mention that briefly. But, you know, just generally, if, if, if an increased police presence sustained over time leads to more clashes between, uh, you know, civilians in that neighborhood and those police officers, it may not be so obvious how to sort through uh, those impacts and how to tease out, uh, you know, the, the incremental uh, negative externalities that, that, that were borne by, uh, by that particular plan. And, and I think that, you know, facial recognition, it, it is different. Uh, it, it's sort of a separate technology. Facial recognition is typically used after an event occurs to scan faces in a group and uh, either match one to a name that's on record or find out who was here at what time, whereas the predictive policing tools that, that we're talking about now are a little more preemptive, uh, resource allocation and staffing and shift decisions and whatnot. Uh, but once you start combining these things uh, and you go back and, and, and listen to our, our episodes on on facial recognition for, for a refresher, you know, facial recognition systems also uh, have been very repeatedly seen uh, to perform with much less accuracy on dark skinned faces than light skinned faces. Uh, MIT just had to remove a training data set 
uh, and I think Facebook might have as well uh, from the, the databases that they offer engineers uh, because of a detection of a racial bias uh, that, that, that would have been borne out through those data sets. And you combine these things and you start to paint a, a pretty scary picture. You imagine that, uh, you know, uh, racially biased, uh, perhaps policing from past, uh, you know, years, months, decades creates a large database that suggests that certain areas have a disproportionate amount of criminality in them uh, when actually, you know, maybe there's a confounding variable, which was, you know, attention from police and, and, and other socioeconomic factors. But, but you start to reallocate again, under the veneer of science, under the veneer of statistical significance, you start to allocate an increased number of police resources to, to certain areas. Uh, and then there's a particular event that occurs in that area. And let's say it's a, a largely African-American community. And some police department that is willing to use predictive policing is probably happy to use uh, facial recognition to, you know, uh, either from an aircraft or from a car or from a drone uh, to quickly scan an area. And if you have a large police presence and let's say a dark skinned person has an altercation with police, they check the drone footage. Facial recognition says, oh, yeah, that's John Smith. Uh, this this other uh, person who who actually ended up you know not being the one involved in the altercation well uh, the the officer who's probably receiving this you know auto generated arrest warrant or or recommendation that that again is a combination of the racial bias that may have been included in the training data set uh, that was that was used for predictive policing as well as the racial bias. Uh, that was contained in the training set that was used for the facial recognition uh, can start to lead to, to just a, a spiral, uh, a really out of control spiral, uh, an almost vortex of um, self-reinforcing uh, problems in society that that technology is, is causing to accelerate faster and faster. And, you know, we see this in many industries in AI in particular, but also in blockchain and quantum computing. Uh, the sheer level of, of misconception as to not only what terminology means, but how various uh, functionalities work. And, you know, I, I think one of the parts of the discussion that gets difficult is some say, well, look, police departments are at an all time low in terms of their budgeting. And we were hoping that predictive policing software would be a tool to, to do exactly this, augment police departments that have budgetary crises. Because if you have a budget crisis or budget cut, you have to cut the number of officers or office officer hours that, that you pay for. And if you can allocate those most efficiently to only the, t the, the times and places in which crime is going to take place – uh, well, well, then, you know, perhaps you have a leg up uh, on the economics that were otherwise going to make your uh, policing and, um, and, and safeguarding of the community more difficult. But but even that, uh, which which may be noble and it, it could genuinely be the case that someone with a law enforcement and artificial intelligence background could, with all the benevolence uh, and goodwill in the world, wish that that is to be the case. But. When I talk about this, and, and, and I think even as I was just speaking those last few sentences, 
uh, scenes from Minority Report, uh, the movie obviously based on the book, come, come to mind where, you know, what are the implications for, for someone who really is caught up at the wrong place in the wrong time? And not that slippery slope arguments are, are always the best way to go, but, you know, let's sort of think of where, where could we go from here? I think what we've seen around the world, around the country over the last couple of months is that many things that various people thought could never happen that their government could not do, their president could not do, Congress could not do, their neighbors could not do, their their boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, mother, father could not do. Um, you know, the, the next steps are not just saying, hey, let's send a number extra police to areas where more crimes are being committed. Uh, but if you take that a few steps farther, uh, you could imagine, you know, a, a, an, uh, an algorithm that basically says if a person has this skin color and is this height, uh, and this eye color and this weight and is within this block and this block between this time and this time on this day and the weather is X, uh, that there's a 99.9% chance they're about to commit a crime. And, and maybe that's even true, whether based on historically biased data or not. Maybe you could find uh, statistically significant relationships like that. But once you start using those to, to effectuate arrests and bringing other people into jail, in, into prison, into the judicial system that, that can often be difficult to get out of, uh, into a system where, you know, due process is not always afforded uh, to everyone equally and, and, and in a timely fashion. And there have been too many stories, uh, horror stories, um, you know, of, of abuse and, and of people wrongfully convicted and wrongfully arrested uh, who, who had to sustain absolutely terrible, life-shattering, life-altering experiences, you know, while they were in a jail or a holding cell or, or, or you know, a, a, some other sort of, you know, penitentiary-like system, uh, especially for, you know, a crime they didn't commit. And I think in addition, you know, if one of the things we are concerned about is just divisiveness, political unrest, social unrest, uh, a widening gap between, uh, you know, socio-political and socio-cultural groups, certainly, you know, letting numbers and, and math take the fall uh, or, or provide the veneer for continuing uh, the, the exact behaviors that led to that targeting. Uh, it doesn't necessarily seem to me uh, that, that, that that would be the wisest social decision. But I do want to step back. And, uh, you know, I think I mentioned this when we were discussing the Goldman Sachs and Apple credit card, uh, which had uh, used AI and machine learning to assign credit limits to new customers and was accused of being sexist uh, because there were men and women who file taxes jointly and, and therefore have you know, the same exact income and assets on the books, uh, where the, where the female, the wife in, in the couple was being assigned a much lower credit limit, uh, than the male. And one of the questions that I posed at the time was hypothetically, if it were proven to you beyond a reasonable doubt that gender was the single most predictive factor in anticipating whether someone defaults on credit card debt, you know, would you be inclined to allow Goldman Sachs and Apple to, to use that data point in their credit assessments? And generally what happens is uh, oftentimes uh, in, in for that particular example, all the men will say, oh, yeah, that's no problem. That's just business. And all the women will say, wait, no, that's unfair. But then if you were to change it, first of all, and you were to say that the men were getting the lower credit limits, 
often you'd see a reversing. And it seems to be a bit of a general case that, you know, uh, that, that the groups that are targeted by or affected disparately by various actions are sometimes the only ones uh, who seem to be speaking out and, and requesting change and reform. And there's been this notion and this almost this doctrine of disparate impact uh, in the U.S. where you really can't make especially governmental decisions that disparately impact uh, particularly protected classes in, in varying ways. And I think when, when we bring that back here, uh, it's an important question, you know, to, to ask yourself to see where you uh, sort of stand on this matter and, and calibrate uh, perhaps your viewpoints going forward, you know, let's first start with some sort of ideal hypothetical world. You have a, a supercomputer that can detect the position and orientation and velocity of every subatomic particle in the universe at any given time and sort of predict the future with, with absolute perfect certainty. Uh, if you had a computer like that, that, that really was certain, where crimes were being committed, uh, would you be okay sending additional uh, police to those places preemptively? Uh, there are different people that will fall on sort of different sides of that. Some will say, yeah, of course, if, if you knew that, certainly, you know, why would you not try to stop it? There are others who will pretty much disregard the hypothetical and say you could never know anything with that much certainty. And then there are others who say, you know, no, I, I just worry that you know, we would continue those type of feedback loops, even with sort of perfect non-probabilistic uh, deterministic computation. Uh, and of course, we don't have anything remotely close to that uh, and, and likely will not, you know, for quite a while. Um, and, and trying to sort of sort through what are the different factors, what type of evidence would you need and what type of safeguards would you need uh, to be comfortable uh, with a predictive policing algorithm assigning an increased police presence, perhaps to your own neighborhood. And I think that's the important part. Many people uh, who think about these exercises often assume that that the, that the predictive policing, uh, that the minor, minority report police will never come for them uh, because that's just not who it's about. It's about those people. It's about those communities. Uh, it's about those areas where there is social unrest and injustice. And those are the ones uh, that will be impacted. And I just want you know, X, Y, and Z. But again, as the world continues to flatten and, you know, borders become more and more meaningless uh, and, and, you know, the concept of security, I think, uh, becomes proven to be more and more of a fallacy. You know, there is no real security, just really varying levels of deterrence and inconvenience uh, when it comes to data and, and privacy and, and, and things like that. And we're seeing this manifest in, in the forms of cybersecurity trends and data breaches. And I, I think it's just extra important to be vigilant on what happens during times of war, so to speak. Uh, you know, right after September 11th here in the U.S., uh, the expanded governmental powers at wartime were used to pass the Patriot Act, uh, which many people still today say is really was that that kind of stepping stone, that that uh, crossing of the Rubicon that, that we could never go back after where, where the government's powers uh, to do things, particularly in the name of national security, were going to be forever impossible uh, to restrict and, and also particularly their ability to do things without accountability, oversight or transparency uh, in the name of, of national security is is 
uh, you know, maybe one of the things that we should have, in retrospect, kept a closer eye on uh, as as it was happening. And, and a lot of people were probably just, uh, you know, a bit blinded and swept up in, in all of the hysteria and uh, camaraderie and patriotism and uh, sort of emotional roller coaster that was the, the post 9-11 uh, American experience. And I think here we have something similar. Uh, you know, oftentimes people have troubles saying no or pointing to a specific reason why the exact technology as it's being described today, if applied today, would be problematic. And and the point is that, you know, once you often cede these types of powers and provide uh, the, the doorways, you see why Apple is refusing repeatedly to provide, you know, a backdoor uh, to their encryption to the FBI and, and to the federal government and uh, whether or not we should create encryption backdoors is, is I, I wish it was a, a more relevant topic, you know, for this podcast. But to me, that's it's a similar issue, you know, to what extent should the power of math and numbers and computers lie in the hands of the engineers who know how to use them best. And, you know, to what extent are we going to continue creating forms of abstraction that allow and democratize use to technology? Uh, because that is a good thing. Uh, if we all had to program uh, in assembly code or if, if we all had to put transistors on a motherboard one by one by hand in order to add two numbers up every time, uh, certainly we would not have progressed this far as a society. And, and allowing you know, non-technical people to uh, engage with uh, computers and, and build computers and build computer programs and, and websites and widgets and web apps, uh, you look at the Wix and the square spaces of the world, these no-code and low-code environments, and it certainly is the direction we're going. Uh, but, but I think it's important to always distinguish, you know, what sort of startups are out there creating, you know, B2C brands and new social media networks and platforms that people use recreationally and, and which are the ones who are directly seeking government uh, contracts uh, as relates to policing and, and, and military uh, and law enforcement and, and in what way uh, could their AI, if unchecked, if perhaps it is not as infallible as its creators think it to be, if it was trained on data that was more biased uh, than its data scientists and, and engineers think it to be, you know, what are the, the various next negative consequences? And, and generally, uh, you really need a, a pretty robust imagination and, and to not be, uh, you know, held or tied down to a very parochial and now here in the moment view of the world in order to think through these things. Uh, and, and sometimes these companies that team up with uh, nonprofits and, and various advocacy groups, they do a really great job of uh, making you feel good and safe and that this technology is is for your benefit, is for the benefit of the world. And, and many times it is. And there are tons of engineers, entrepreneurs, investors and, and, and startups and, and firms out there that are, are really building great predictive technologies and maybe even ones that they one day uh, hope will help the police. But I think the point is right now, uh, the combination of the state of the world and the state of AI has made the people who know how AI works the best, who understand the math that underlies its algorithms most intimately, has made them pretty unilaterally uncomfortable uh, with these probabilistic um, 
assumption, these probabilistic outputs being used to determine policing decisions, use of force decisions, and things of that nature. Uh, and that's why a number of these people have, have all signed this letter that I would really encourage uh, everyone to read and click through to the different links that they cite, both the ones that show the concerns, the ones that show uh, what sort of claims from a business perspective this company Predpol uh, and others like to make. Uh, and I think as you start to, to get a better sense of what various mathematicians say and what their concerns are uh, and what some of the counterpoints are, uh, you can you can really more more accurately calibrate, you know, your moral and philosophical compass to what it means to be using technology in a, uh, you know, a conflict and controversy ridden field like law enforcement uh, in the year 2020. Uh, so with that, thanks again, everyone so much for joining us. This was the AI experience. Mm -hmm.